When COVID hit, we saw more than 90% of all the activity on our platform just drop off a cliff. Globally, it wasn't quite as bad as we thought it was going to be, but it still was a massive hit to the industry and to us. Those kind of disruptive changes, of course, accelerate some trends. The trend that has been accelerated is, of course, you know, virtual wellness. And you combine that with connected devices, and now what you see is this fusion of technology that will produce the next wave of wellness growth. And we think the decade of the 2020s will be as big or bigger than the decades behind us. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. Hi, everyone. We are thrilled to have our next guest, Rick Stolemeyer, currently the executive chairman and co-founder of MindBody. I've known Rick for quite some time, and he has co-founded MindBody in his garage in 2001 and was a CEO for over 20 years. Welcome, Rick, to the show. Super excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me here, Mod. It's great to see you again. So, you know, let's start with how you're doing. I hear you just finished a road trip throughout the U.S. Well, you're about to finish it. How has it been? How has everything been going on in the country leading up to the election? Well, actually, I'm, uh, my wife and I are still on the final leg of our trip. We have a couple more weeks left, about 10 days. And we've gone coast to coast, all the way up from, from California, all the way across to Maine, uh, then down the eastern seaboard. We're in Tennessee right now in Nashville, heading down to Florida, and then heading back to California. And I just have to say this on a, on a personal note, like meeting people in every state, people, I think, are in a better state than we would expect by just watching the media or social media. And people's fear, the two biggest issues of our day, number one being COVID, and number two being race relations and Black Lives Matter, seems to be inversely proportional from their distance to the problem. So the people that are farthest away from those problems or issues seem to have the most triggered fear, mm. uh, particularly you know those who construe uh, Black Lives Matter protests as riots. Um, whereas those who live right next to where the most active protests have been seem to be just getting on with their lives and seem to have the most balanced views. I, I spent uh, several days in Bed-Stuy, uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, And that's one of the most racially integrated neighborhoods I've seen in a long time. And just the emotional well-being and health of everyone seems to be in pretty good shape, all things considered. And as we are recording this, of course, uh, the election hangs in the balance. We don't know. Those listening <laughs> know. to this will probably know by the time this is produced and posted who the we next We will know by the time this goes live in a few weeks. But everybody, you're listening to us through a time machine. We have no, we don't know the outcome. In fact, I won't even comment further. We don't know the outcome. Yeah, yet. we do not need to. Let's not comment on politics. If you look at your career, and I think this podcast is really around growth, You've had a really interesting career so far, and you started as a submarine officer in the Navy and then starting MindBody. This is probably the most interesting. Uh, we've had people who started from artists and became designers, but I think for you is is quite interesting. So what made you make that transition? What made you decide to start a company? Entrepreneurism is really in my core. It's in my family. It goes back to my grandfather, who was a small shop owner back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, actually my great-grandfather, then my grandfather, 30s, 40s, 50s, then my own father, 60s, 70s, 80s. 
And I grew up in that small retail business environment. Secondly, I always had the entrepreneurial itch. You know, I took this side trip into the Navy and was very proud to serve as a Navy submarine officer. And after the Navy, I, I worked in corporate America in a number of different engineering management roles. But in my heart of hearts, I really always wanted to start my own business. And when my old high school roommate, high school roommate, high school classmate, when my old high school classmate, Blake Beltram, came to me and showed me this, uh, this PC software application he had written for yoga, Pilates, and spinning studios, I was really fascinated. And I went out and started studying the market. Now, this was 20 years ago, right when the whole boutique fitness movement was just getting, getting going. And what I saw really excited me. Number one, these are grassroots entrepreneurs. These are small, independent business owners. Number two, they're doing something really new and impactful. Wellness and fitness aren't new, but delivering it in that kind of curated fashion, delivering, delivering the kind of results that they do, really connecting to people, mind, body, and soul, I found that deeply inspiring. And so chucked all caution to the wind in the fall of 2000, left my uh, rather successful engineering management career, one that I was successful on the surface, but not terribly inspired by, and started Mind Body in my garage. So, you know, Mind Body grew so much. You guys uh, built a business of over 35 million users, took the company public, then ended up selling it. What do you think helped you succeed and grow this company? Well, number one is we really strove from the beginning to truly get inside the heads of our customers. I think a lot of people in technology start abstracting the end user, they, you know, using personas or other methods of development. And there just is no substitute for truly understanding the customer. And, and both Blake and I, having come from these small business families, we really understood something about these business owners that a lot of people didn't, particularly a lot of people in tech. We understood, first and foremost, how rather sophisticated their thinking is. Uh, a lot of times we can get um, arrogant, you know, as we think about, you know, Main Street businesses and, and not really understanding, number one, these people have everything on the line. Number two, the fact that they're there and that they're there for any period of time means that they are extraordinarily competent in what they do. It is very hard yeah. to run a successful Main Street business of any category and the fitness and wellness industry are no exception. So Blake and I and the team that we built really understood that. I think the next thing is that is that we did not get attached to any one technology. So when a technologist, an engineer, starts a software company, well, it's going to be very difficult for that individual to remain a sense of objective detachment from the technology itself. If they built it, if they literally wrote the first code, they're going to have a sense of emotional detachment. Most of our competitors in the early 2000s were, were those people. You know, it's like the brother of the yoga studio owner that writes the application for her studio. And as technology was moving so rapidly, I mean, we went from a PC application, installed licenses, to a hybrid SaaS model, to a full SaaS model in the course of four years, because that was the advent of ubiquitous high-speed internet, which didn't exist prior to 2001. I mean, it was there, but only in a tiny fraction of households or small business locations. And so for SaaS to work, we had to have that high-speed internet that was reliable and secure. Number three, I think of a, a few very good decisions. You know, we we made that leap to a pure SaaS model in 05, and there were only a couple of analogs to us prior to that. Uh, QuickBooks Online was an inspiration to us, um, as was, of course, Salesforce. And so those two things launching just the year and a half, two years before we did, helped give us the the, the realization that this would work in the small business 
arena. And so we were first to market with a killer app because it was less expensive, more reliable, work on PCs and on Macs, which today we take for granted, but back then was very hard to deliver. And it was continuously evolving at a rate that installed software could not. And so we just basically blew the market away in 05, 06, 07, 08 with that insight. And also we're just super stubborn, like we weren't going to give up. We weren't the only ones with the idea. And there was plenty of people who fast followed us as competitors. And, you know, everybody knows there's a first mover advantage, but fast followers can often move quicker and be more agile because they get to learn vicariously from the mistakes of the, of the leader. Yeah. And so we, we were cognizant of all of that and we have kept our, our productive paranoia uh, the entire time. I love that productive paranoia. You know, I think you guys have an app and you've adapted as mobile started and as mobile evolved. How did you think about the importance of mobile? especially in the health and fitness and in your particular in your industry? Well, that's just an example of an, of an, an incipient technology that changes the game entirely. So when we first launched our SaaS in 05, we had no concept that we were going to be able to run the entire application ultimately on mobile devices. And of course, with the advent of the iPhone in June 07, it was only two years later. Uh, you know, now Steve Jobs is holding up this brand new device you know, on stage uh, at Macworld and we, um, we were pretty blown away by it. And, and I would say it took us about six months to realize, okay, this is going to change everything. And we have to recast our product as a mobile, in a mobile-first strategy because we knew we were going to build a B2C marketplace. So one of the critical decisions was to launch the B2C in a mobile-first application. But that's just a perfect illustration of why you cannot get attached to any one delivery form. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, as you, as you think about how the health and fitness is evolving and the new things that might like come into the market, like maybe AR is going to change the market just the same way the phone did. What do you think are the trends and um, what do you think companies who are looking to enter the market should consider? Yeah, well, so the obvious of those, of course, you know, is uh, virtual delivery models. You know, when uh, this was already happening, you know, Peloton and, and Mir and others had already entered the marketplace in the last few years, but they didn't have widespread adoption. And so when COVID hit, you know, that, that Friday, the 13th of March uh, of 2020, when we saw more than 90% of all the activity on our platform just drop off a cliff globally, what amazed us was how quickly and with agility, our customers, the small business owners, found ways to work around that limitation to maintain connectivity to their clientele. And by the end of March, we had replanned our entire year. In fact, we had to lay off staff because we knew our revenue was going to be hit. And as now we look back on that first two quarters of COVID, it wasn't quite as bad as we thought it was going to be, but it still was a massive hit to the industry and to us. But those kind of disruptive changes, of course, accelerate some trends and they arrest other trends. The trend that has been accelerated is, of course, you know, virtual wellness, the ability to deliver that functionality anywhere in the world. And you combine that with connected devices. And now what you see is this fusion of technology that will produce the next wave of wellness growth. And we think the decade of the 2020s will be as big or bigger than the decades behind us. At the same time, we saw the basic fundamentals of wellness, the desire that people have to devote themselves to activities that lead to healthier, happier lives is greater than ever. So there's that hasn't changed. At the end of the day, 
we believe that where the industry emerges out of this is with less bricks and mortar locations, but not all of them gone, not by any long, not by any stretch. In fact, there are many new entrants coming into the space now. And what they're doing is hybrid delivery models, delivery models that work regardless of whether you're face-to-face or whether you're being receiving that class or that service remotely. And we think that's going to be a durable trend. And we also believe that the value of face-to-face will go up. And, you know, there's a close analog in the restaurant industry. You know, if you've, if you've been out to eat lately at a nice restaurant, right, the first time you get to do it after months of being able to do it, it's just like you're almost giddy. You know, I was just with a friend in, in Chelsea, in Manhattan, and we're like out on the sidewalk, you know, we're kind of freezing cold because it's the, the fall is hitting in New York and we're just giddy. We're like, oh my God, this is almost like real life because we need that. We need that human touch. We need that connection. And, and as a human race, we're starving for it right now. We see this in the fitness studios, the gyms, the spas, the salons. People are really hungry for the face-to-face and they'll pay a premium price for that. So I think the industry is going to be expanded through virtual delivery and the imperative of wellness, which is even more in focus now. And we think that there'll be a number of businesses that really thrive in this environment. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. We've see, we, I mean, we're seeing a lot of this in like the food delivery space. And I think we did an analysis of, at Branch and businesses who have like, you know, dropped, stayed the same or grew. Uh, and in the early days of COVID, everything that had social in it, social gaming, the, the interesting thing for us when we look at the data is that a lot of a lot of industries have come back to where they were before COVID. When we look, obviously, when you look at the app usage, um, and I think that's both the ones that grew like crazy in the early days are now back to a more stable growth rate, and the ones that weren't doing that well are now back to like getting engagement and people using them. You fundamentally don't change two hundred thousand years of human evolution with a pandemic. And while we can't grow, draw exact parallels to the Spanish flu, the, 28, the 1918 flu, excuse me, we can notice that almost nobody in the decade of the 1920s talked about it. In other words, it's not, I don't think we're going to dwell in this area. I think, I hope, that the, all the governments of the world have learned important lessons about public health and being ready for the next pandemic, because it'll come. There will be others. There will be others. And I believe that we now, because COVID particularly victimizes people who are in poor shape to begin with, in poor health, certainly hypertension, type 2 diabetes, cancer, these are the folks who have suffered the most from COVID. And so, and we see firsthand the cost of that. So I think governments, employers, insurance companies now really have the data that indicates this is the cost of having large portions of our population in terrible shape. And I believe, we believe that that will cause a new forms of incentive and education to get more people into active and healthy lifestyles, you know, which is really about moving your body more, eating the right foods and managing our stress. That's really what it's about. And everybody wins when you do that, of course, you know, and so I think we'll look back on COVID in 10 years as being a giant wake up call that accelerated mostly positive trends in our society. And I'm not, I don't believe that in two or three years, we're going to be just dwelling in this. I think we're going to be glad to put it in the rearview mirror. And if anything, we're going to need our, our leaders to remind us that we need to continue making investments in this area. 
I agree with that. And you wrote a book around this, right? Uh, you recently, yes. recently published a book. Do you want to tell our audience about your book? And Yes. It's How to Build a Wellness Business That Lasts, The Definitive Guide for Teachers, Trainers, Therapists, and Entrepreneurs in a Post-COVID World. It's on Amazon. By the way, the book is about the wellness industry and being a wellness entrepreneur, but the principles, I'm sure your listeners would know, are universal. In fact, my first idea of the book was to make it universal. And the publisher and I, after chatting about it and thinking about it, I said, well, you know, this is the, the specific vertical where I have an enormous amount of knowledge. But I have to say 90% of the content you could apply to any entrepreneurial venture. Interesting. So people can find it on Amazon. Can you tell them the name again? Building a wellness business that lasts. Building a wellness business that lasts on Amazon. So... When you think about you built your own business and you 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 know you uh, started as a founder and as a CEO, so let's talk about your own personal growth and how you think about your evolution as a CEO, uh, and and what do you think are the things that influenced um, you most and how you became a leader? Well, certainly my time in the Navy, you know, being a naval officer, being put in positions of great responsibility at a young age. I mean, early twenties. Well, you're responsible for the livelihood, the lives and safety of others in a high-consequence environment aboard a nuclear submarine. It taught me some important principles of leadership. It taught me a lot about myself. It gave me a, a great sense of humility. I took all of that into the startup of MindBody. Our ability to establish a culture around people who are really hungry to be part of something bigger than themselves was built into our DNA from the very beginning to be purpose-driven, to be utterly committed to the cause of the business. It, it fuels the organization with a special kind of energy because you're, you're going to suffer setbacks. You're going to have hard times. But when you have that higher sense of purpose, the team can more effectively transcend those difficult times. Secondly, to recognize that the job of a leader is to serve, not to be served. And leaders exist because in most human teams, the presence of a leader, of a coach, a teacher, a mentor, that presence is going to enable that team to perform better. There are exceptions, you know, like Agile Scrum, you know, where a self-directed work team can get themselves uh, forward on a project. And, and of course, we incorporate that as well. But in most cases, teams of human beings flourish better with effective leadership. And so I brought all of that to my body. And you know, for me, here I am, uh, you know, I've now moved to a part-time role of executive chairman, um, which allows me to focus just in the strategic areas that I really love the most, functioning mostly on a board level, but also mentoring the, C the new CEO and president of MindBody, and also spending more time out in the field, you know, more time talking to folks like you, more time uh, interacting with our customers, and advocating for the industry overall. This illustrates to me the fruit of all of that effort to build a strong team. It was always my desire that the company that I co-created would live, live on far beyond me. I never wanted the business to be about me. Deliberately from an early days was focusing on how to build a strong team that if something happened to me, you know, I get hit by the proverbial bus, they can continue on. So handing this baton off this past summer wasn't easy on an emotional level, but I knew it was necessary. And it was something our board of directors and I had been planning for more than a year. By doing so and not hanging on too long to the job, but also still being on a role and on the board level, 
I feel I'm fostering and enabling the organization's ability to go on long after um, I'm out of the scene entirely, you know, and, and that's my greatest wish that the mind body continues to grow and evolve and to help our cause of, of the global cause of wellness, help hundreds of millions of people live healthier, happier lives, that that goes on long after I'm gone. I love that. That's actually very inspiring, both on this idea that, you know, you build a company that's not just about you, but also I love how passionate you are about the mission of the company. I think that's that's really awesome to see. Thank you. So, you know, as you think about the your mission and your growth so far, do you have any stories of uh, features, campaigns, things you do did that drove a lot of growth and maybe some that were failures and actually ended up miserably failing. I think our listeners can probably learn both from from either failures or successes. Well, there's a long list of failures. It'd be difficult to know where to start. Well, first of all, rolling out a SaaS version of our software, which we call MindBody Online, because that was a name that was approachable to our target audience, was a huge home run. And what quickly ensued was a pile-on of demands from different cohorts of customers for new features like building these things up. And we said no, no to a lot of things, but we didn't say no to nearly enough. So I would say among the bigger failures, um, a major franchise chain brand that people know, and I won't name, who pushed us into creating a DVD delivery fulfillment feature inside of the software so that when you were booking your class, you could order the DVD and it would calculate the U.S. Postal Service and or UPS shipping rates and Oh my God, like that thing that we thought was going to be seven or eight features turned into scores of features before before I finally had the backbone to go to meet with the CEO of that company and say, no, we're not going to do it, knowing it could very well cost me the relationship of one of our largest customers. And at one point, I actually turned my laptop around and went to our website. I said, at what place on this website do you see DVD fulfillment as our feature uh, a, a value promise uh, of my body. Oh, that's awesome. So, of course, you know, uh, everybody in tech knows that when you build features like that, that code, even after you've you've deprecated the feature, the code is still sitting there. And, and that becomes a real albatross as you have more and more and more features. And, of course, we've all heard this. At the same time, the features matter. The features that matter, matter. So discerning what those are uh, there's myriad other examples of, of features that we tried that didn't work. Like most of our failures were around e-commerce, around products. It, it wasn't our core business. And you know, if you look at what Shopify has built, well, that was actually a concept we had. We just, you know, there was no way we were ever going to execute that as well as Toby and that team have done. Yeah. And I think the number one lesson that every tech entrepreneur needs to hear over and over again, frankly, any entrepreneur, any entrepreneur, is define very precisely who your target audience is, define even more precisely what you will do for that target audience, and stick to it. Yeah. Like, can't stick to it, stick to it, and, and resist the urge to broaden the beam. It's, it's, in, it's a siren on the rocks, and we all get sucked into it. So I would say those are our largest mistakes. How about, you know, some things that you guys did that, you know, drove a ton of growth and did really well? Features, marketing campaigns. Well, I mean, we were the first ones to aggregate all of the available classes and appointments. And we did it in a in a principle of really of really embracing the notion of an open web services API. 
that we would have consumer-facing applications, uh, ultimately the MindBody app that you see today and the web equivalent, MindBody.io, that we would, we would have our own, but we would also enable other entrepreneurs to build on top of that platform. And that's been a home run for us. It also has caused no small amount of regular angst on our team because we literally are enabling competitors in many cases. And the most obvious one that, that people know well is ClassPass. ClassPass was built on our platform and the majority of all the classes and appointments booked on ClassPass in normal times, these are really weird times right now, um, the majority are actually through the MindBody API. And so our metaphor was, well, if we built the best railroad from LA to San Francisco, you could run that railroad in one of two ways. You could say, if you want to get to San Francisco by rail, you have to ride on our trains. Or you could say, you know what? We have trains and we'll also enable competitors to run trains on our rails. And of course we make a little bit every time those trains run. So uh, I think that has been a giant home run for us. It enabled that plus hundreds of other really innovative entrepreneurs have built things on top of our platform. We aspired to be a platform company long before we had any scale. And we took inspiration from Intuit and Salesforce and a few others. So I'd count that as, as definitely the top two or three best decisions we ever made. That's awesome. I love that. And you're right. I never thought about it that way. The railroad model analogy is so great. I always wonder, like in Japan, uh, each railroad is owned by a company and no other trains can go on their railroad. And I always thought it was like so weird and so complicated. Right. And what that does is when you set up a monopoly like that, you ultimately will drive for any normal business, you know, that isn't Google, you know, you will ultimately drive competitors to get around you. Which is what they do, right? In the metaphor, either they're going to build another set of tracks. That's, and that's what they did. And it's not necessarily yeah. the best for the environment or the people or... That's right. So so it's funny how you'll hear some tech gurus, you know, talk about how wonderful a monopoly is. Uh, I, I defy you to show me a monopoly that succeeded for more than a couple of decades in human history. It doesn't work well. Humanity doesn't work well with monopolies. And, and they will ultimately... If the market doesn't take the monopoly apart, then it's the government, you know, like the railroads, like the steel industry, like the oil industry, you know, 120 years ago. And of course, look what big tech is facing now. And I think big tech needs to face this because the way they're running is becoming exclusionary. I think that's the problem with the monopoly, right? Like once you think that you could be a monopoly, but when you become, when you have so much power, it's very hard to not abuse it. And we're seeing it with Google. Like it, yeah, they are abusing it, and I think it's not. It is human nature, right? It's the pressure of the markets, and it's like it's like you watch the social dilemma, right? First of all, I'm so heartened that that movie got made, because that shows you there's still a lot going right in tech. And if anybody hasn't seen that movie, please watch it. It's extremely compelling, and the story is told in a very sober way. But what it points to ultimately, and, and what several of the uh, former social network execs say in the movie is, look, we didn't start out trying to create something evil. It wasn't like there was bad intent. These platforms have created a lot of good in the world. You know, Facebook and Instagram, Pinterest, create a lot of good in the world. And there is this other side of it. So what's happening is these businesses are driven to continue to leverage these algorithms and this AIML to continue to drive more of our engagement, to continue to drive more ad sales, 
And it's almost like they're begging us to regulate them. You know, and Zuckerberg himself said, you know, the industry needs regulation. And until we regulate them, they will keep doing it because that's how they're constructed. They're constructed to maximize that, that aim. That's called capitalism. And it's fine as long as it's regulated. So I think we're, we may find, that may be the one issue the two sides of the political aisle can agree on in the next few years. And so I'm hopeful that we'll see good legislation that will, among its many benefits, help reinvigorate innovation in our industry by breaking up some of these uh, incredibly powerful monopolies. Well said. I, I, I am hoping for that as well. Before we get to our lightning round, which is three fun, fun questions, I want to end with a question that's a little bit more on the human side uh, of growth. What advice do you have for people who are like looking to grow in their careers, looking to perhaps start a company one day, looking to become a CEO of a company one day? What advice do you have for them? Well, I think it's, it's first and foremost important that you have real corporate experience. It's a rare entrepreneur that can go straight from college, you know, and start something and just, you know, be the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Those are strange cats. And the rest of us are mere mortals. And the mere mortals need to see how corporate organizations operate for some period of time and take note of, of the bad examples. I, I, I happen to think the bad examples of leadership are even more valuable than the good ones because they will illustrate in stark reality, the cost of doing things the wrong way. I left an engineering firm to start my body in part because I was one of those spark plugs that was making things happen in that little business. You know, there were 170 employees and half of them worked for me. And my corner of the business, I had like doubled in size in a couple of years. And I went to my boss, the CEO, and I said, you know what, I just want to make sure my ladder is leaning against the right wall. And, uh, I learned later that he was deeply offended by my approach. You know, how dare I? Because I was, I was saying, you know, I'd, I'd like to have a piece of the action. You know, I'd like to have some ownership. Yeah. And I'll go out and make you a lot of money, Ted. <laughs> and he pushed me away. So when I started my body, I said, I, that, when that person shows up in my team, I'm going to make darn sure I don't give him the Heisman. <laughs> that was an example of a really bad example. Uh, and the sad thing is I would have made that guy a lot of money. And I say that with all humidity, like I really understood this was an engineering services model uh, in a space launch facility, one of the facilities that SpaceX is in today. Back then, that was pre-SpaceX. But we were selling to Lockheed Martin and Orbital Sciences and Boeing, and as well as the Air Force and, and NASA. And we had a really strong engine, growth engine going that could have gone national. I'm so glad that he responded the way he did because my body wouldn't have existed otherwise. But I never forgot that lesson. I love that. I And I think it's totally true. I always tell people that I learn a lot more about being a founder from the things my managers or my leaders did badly. Because the, the good things, they're so easy to take for granted. Mm -hmm. and you don't notice them as much. It's easier to notice the bad things. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Because yeah, when, when, when you work for a highly effective leader, yeah, it is hard to notice all the things they're doing right. You know, they make it look easy, right? Like talented people in any industry, they make it look easy. Cool. Well, this was awesome. So let's move to the lightning round, which is a little bit silly and a little bit fun. So we have three questions for you. Nice. If you had to delete all the apps you had on your phone and you could only keep one, what would you keep? My weather app. Because you know what? The weather, I'm a geek about 
meteorology and the weather, and I love being outside. And the weather is a reminder that we are not in charge. I love it. Of, of what's going on on this planet. Like we're heading down to Florida and the remnants of Hurricane Ada are now aiming right at Southern Florida. So we're gonna change our plans. Thanks to the weather app. So give me the weather app and take all the rest of it off and I'll be just fine. You are the first person, I think you're like podcast number like 35 or something. Mm -hmm. You're the first person who has answered the weather app and I love it. I wanted to be original. <laughs> you are definitely original. If you had an app, talk to an animal and one animal alone, what animal would it be? Dogs. My wife and I, we adore our dogs. We have a mini Australian Shepherd and a mini Labradoodle. And uh, they're like our children. Are they on the road trip with you? Yes. You know, we, we are both second time around. We've blended our families. Our actual children are, are 28 to 16, four of them. So these are like our new babies. And we love these dogs. I think our kids might even be a little jealous. And dogs are just amazing. I mean, they, they really are this perfect complement to the human psyche. If you told me this 10 years ago that I'd be so passionate about canines, I would have thought, what? You know, not so sure. But yes, I would love to be able to speak to dogs to understand what's going on in their minds because there's a lot going on there. I agree. I have a dog also who's right now at the beach, but uh, I always, I would have also picked dogs. My wife and I, one of our COVID projects was to learn guitar. Like I played before in high school, but she never played before. So we took lessons and we're getting really into it. And uh, she has, uh, she's coined a song and the song is titled Dogs Don't Take Selfies. I love it. I want to listen to it. <laughs> Maybe send it to me after. I will. And then lastly, what's the most unlikely app on your phone? Urban Dictionary. Wow. Because I just, I, you know what? I'm a generation ahead of most of you, but I just want to stay hip to what people are saying out there. And every once in a while, it's just, it's just damn hilarious. Have you ever added a word to Urban Dictionary? I have not. I can't say that I'm creative enough to have come up something worthwhile. I have. I'm going to tell you my, my word. It's cutalist. It's something that's cute. It's a catalyst for cuteness, like my dog. A cutalist. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, well, the latest word I just saw, and I know we're not, I'm not being political. I just want to say the latest word I saw that got a genuine laugh out of me is Trump fluffer. So uh, I'll just, you know. Let's, okay, Dan, well, we could just. You can look that up that. in the dictionary. We won't have to, to say what that means here. That, that's pretty awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. We really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for joining us today, Rick. My pleasure, Mata. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.